Open with me in your Bibles to the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5 will be in verses 7 through 12 this morning. Well, it is a good uh, Father's Day for me. My wife is back after having been gone for a whole week. She got in last night. So it was pizza, hot dogs, Legos, and bike riding and sermon riding as I could. My son came up to me at one point while I was working on this sermon, which we'll deal with patience, and said, hey, dad, I finished one, two, and three, and I'm ready for number four. I said, son, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, um, oh, I finished the first three steps in the Lego thing that we got him, and I'm ready for the fourth. Would you want to help me out with it? I said, son, I'm busy right now, but I'd be glad to help you in a bit. To which he replied, I don't mean to be impatient, but I will kind of go ahead and just finish it by myself. So that's how much he loves me. Um, well, there's a study on impatience recently conducted at the University of Massachusetts Amherst to measure how long people are willing to wait for a video to load on their computers or phones. They studied 6.7 million people. After two seconds, people started moving on. After five seconds, 25% of the people had moved on. And after 10 seconds of waiting on the video, 50% had moved on. And what was surprising to me was that almost 3.5 million people actually waited 10 seconds, at least 10 seconds for this video. Well, I can relate with those who moved on. I think we can all relate with that. That kind of impatience is no problem at all. We don't need to feel bad. How long we're willing to wait says something about what we expect to gain for our patience. And a video on a phone is usually a pretty meager reward. Well, we can all relate with James's first readers, the first Christians that would have read this letter in the first century, in this passage in the first century. Sometimes we wait too long for things that are not a very big deal. And sometimes we give up waiting on things that are a big deal. Our expectations for what's to come are too low. And as it turns out, a crucial key to the kind of Christian living that James describes in this letter is the kind of Christian waiting that James describes in these verses, verses 7 through 12. Let's read them. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Our outline for this morning, two evidences of impatience and three examples of patience. Patience for the return of Christ and how we lose it. That's the best way, I think, to understand how this passage's various parts fit together. As we've seen in our time studying the book of James already, it can take a bit of work to figure out how some stuff that James writes relates to other stuff that James writes, even right next to each other. 
And at first, parts of James smell like pork in a congressional bill. There's the main thing, and there's the other stuff that sort of needed to get in there, and it got in there. Or if you prefer a more pure food word picture, picture uh, James's book can be at times like a casserole. There's all kinds of things in there, and the consistency is at times so diverse, it just actually kind of works. But in case today's passage, in the case of today's passage, one theme seems really, really clear. The main thing that is the return of Christ, he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. He says the judge is standing at the door. And of course, he gives three different examples of patience that we should observe as we wait on the coming of the Lord. But then there's this other stuff that he sort of inserts into the meal. Do not grumble against one another. And especially, he says, above all, don't swear oaths. Let your yes be your yes and your no your no. You're like, how is that above all? Like, if you hear one thing I say this morning, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. And it doesn't seem to have connection with anything else he said in the last few verses. Stuff seems a bit off topic. But surprise, once again, James is not making a casserole. He's making a holiday turkey. This thing does go together. There's turkey and then there's the stuffing. And it all makes sense with some reflection. James gets how sins are connected to expectations for what is to come or a lack of expectation for what's to come. He gets how sin is connected to our posture toward Jesus' promise that he's coming back. And our deficient vision of Christ's return explains our deficient living in the meantime. Sometimes, like with a video on your phone, we just give up, and that's maybe one kind of impatience. But the kind of impatience James is dealing with is the kind that attempts to force an outcome that says, I'll do it myself. We usually think of impatience as expressing itself in sort of sudden and isolated incidents, events. We kicked the cat. We snapped our pen. We got impatient today. We crawled through the fast food window to make our own burger. You guys can all relate with that, I'm sure. But there is a deeper kind of impatience that James is getting at. One that is harder for us to perceive without the help of the Spirit through his word. And you may not have thought of your own sin struggles as having their root in a form of deeper impatience. But thankfully, God's Spirit understands your heart better than you do. And he's here to instruct you. This is what James will show us. Two evidences of impatience. Two evidences of impatience. Two ways in which we say, I know Christ said he'll come, but I'll go ahead and do this myself. Two ways in which we try to bring the pre- into the present the outcome that we want. We try to force into the present the outcome that we desire. The first is grumbling. Grumbling. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Grumbling is a form of impatience as we force our judgment on a person by speaking cruelly about them instead of allowing God to take care of things on his own as he's promised. If we feel we've already covered this sin, 
We have. James has brought up the issue of the tongue in a variety of ways time and again. And he's spoken about speaking against one another. And so as James brought it up again, we'll address it again instead of merely skipping over it and getting merely to return of Christ stuff, which is the newer material. But before we reflect on exactly what James is saying here, let's remember what he said about grumbling already. Turn with me to James chapter 3, just a chapter or two back. Math isn't that hard. Two chapters back. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So disorder in the church, he calls grumbling. A vile practice, unspiritual, demonic, earthly. Now James chapter 4, verse 11, turn there, chapter forward. Chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? When we grumble against one another, we assume our place on God's judge's bench. We do not trust him to do the job he has promised when he is good and ready. And these passages have been for us a kind of a reality check on subtle but easy, easy to justify sins. But here in James chapter 5, James comes at it from a somewhat different angle. He's already come at it from a few angles. The spiritual angle, he said it's demonic. The relational angle, it's disorderly. The legal angle, with that imagery, it's presumptuous to assume the place of judge. And now he shows us what grumbling is from the angle of history. He says it's impatient. It's impatient. Jesus Christ will come, and when he does, he makes sure that all that is said and done, that when all is said and done, that nothing said or done will go unnoticed. Jesus is the resolution to the dissonance of history and the dissonance that we feel in our lives that we're always wanting to resolve. And James's original readers needed to remember this. Let's not forget what they were going through. They were persecuted, crushed Christians, taken advantage of, defrauded as their Wealthy landowners who employed them kept back wages that they needed with which to feed their family. And so James wrote to them at the beginning of chapter 5 last week. He said, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And this is one reason James can say, be patient for the coming of the Lord. Because they need to be patient and not take out their issues on their landowners, but be patient for the Lord to deal with them as he will, justly. The wealthy and compassionless landowner is in certain spiritual danger, and James makes that clear. But, but, their offenses against James's poor readers did not give James's readers a pass for their offenses against one another. 
No doubt the pressure of the times and the put pressure on their relationships with one another. Commands against grumbling are not given on the grounds that everything is just fine. Like when you say to your kid, don't complain. You don't usually say, because everything's perfect. Often there's a disappointment of a kind. Well, you can imagine in this situation, there are all kinds of reasons to grumble, even against one another. And the circumstances of life exacerbate this and provoke this. Now, while the landowners were in spiritual danger, James's readers were also in spiritual danger. For in their difficulty, they were becoming difficult people. In the situation in which they were sinned against greatly, they were sinning against one another greatly. And how often is that actually how it rolls? That someone else's greatest sins is the provocation for one of our greatest sins. Well, I would have you know that we actually don't get off because we were provoked. That's what James is saying. And so he writes in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble. Do not share something that is true about somebody and, but unflattering. Don't share something that's true and unflattering but not the whole story. And don't share something that's untrue and not flattering, lying and not telling any of the story. And all of this in the hopes that someone will think ill of another person and better of you. We've explored this sin a bit over the weeks past. That's why grumbling against another person is commanded against. It's a great impatience to believe that Jesus won't really return in good enough time to set all things right or that when he does return, he's going to do a pretty poor job of it and so we want to get ahead to make sure that it's done right. The impatience of James's readers for the return of Christ to judge will mean that they are in a position to be judged by Christ themselves and that's why he warns them here. Well, there's a second evidence of impatience that James addresses. Look at verse 12. He says, above all, my brothers, you can hear that as finally, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The second evidence of impatience James addresses is that of swearing oaths. I'm sure when we first read that this morning, or if you read it ahead of today, you thought, what does that have to do with the passage? And it isn't easy to understand even what it means on the surface. Does it mean oaths in a court of law? No, I don't think he's talking about those kinds of oaths. He's talking about the kind of thing that we do in ordinary daily speech. Like when you say, I swear or I'm telling the truth, or swear on the Holy Bible, I didn't do it. This was said to me one time by a person who was recently caught in a history of lies to everyone in his life. I swear on the Holy Bible, I wasn't hearing that for anything, or subtler, truthfully, or I'm being honest. These are all ways in which we add words to our words to strengthen the perception that we're telling the truth. And it may be that we're telling the truth and it may be that we're not. But that's the problem. Why would we feel that we need to do that at all? What we're doing is compensating for the fact that we actually aren't always being completely truthful with our words. 
We like to assume different levels of truth for different kinds of things. One level when someone asks about our resume, another level when we're trying to explain why we did something really stupid that's embarrassing, another level when somebody's when we're talking about somebody when they're not around, we may exaggerate, embellish or straight up state the opposite of what is true, but it can't be found out because they're not there, and we become expert at using words to conceal rather than to convey clearly reality. And this is what James is addressing. So don't tell people you're telling the truth, he says. Tell the truth. Improve your integrity with your consistently honest speech. Good old-fashioned, plain-spoken truth is the foundation for trust, which is the basis of any meaningful relationship. We, of all people, should have a reputation for being straight shooters, straightforward in our speech, not shifty, or shady, or unclear. And this is why James is not addressing the kind of thing we do in court. In court, there's no reason a judge or jury should trust us. Oaths, in that case, are a way of tethering the person's words to their conscience. Or signatures on a contract. James would not have us go to the bank and say, just trust me, I'll pay back the loan. The Bible tells me I can't sign contracts. I can't take oaths. My yes is my yes. No, and that kind of a relationship, a signature, is just fine. But not in the day-to-day, which is what James is talking about. Our yes and our no as we go. If you recognize James's words, it might be because they're similar to what Jesus has said. In Matthew 5, Jesus was addressing a similar issue. The Old Testament speaks about swearing oaths, and it's a very, very serious thing. You swear an oath on God's name, and you'd better keep it. But within Judaism of the day, oaths actually became a way of getting around having always to tell the truth. And so you've got people saying, for example, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. To which Jesus replied, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? There's a whole system of oaths just like this, and Jesus was undermining it. And according to Jesus and James, there is no word for which we will not give account. No one under oath on the stand should need to say, now I'm under oath, but what I'm about to say is true. Uh, No, it's assumed that everything that you're saying is true. It is that way for the ears of heaven. The need to swear oaths is a form of impatience as we force our will on people by manipulating them with a sliding scale of truthfulness that we use as we feel we need. It's using words in an unauthorized way to make your life better now because you aren't willing to wait for Jesus to make it perfect later. So in both the case of grumbling and false speech, James gives a command Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Do not grumble against one another. And he also gives a warning. For grumbling, the judge is at the door. And for swearing oaths, he says, you'll be condemned. That is, Jesus is coming and they shouldn't want to be found doing either when he does. But he gives us more than warnings against these sins. These commands and warnings are negative. Do not. But he also positively and pastorally gives us encouragement in the form of several examples. And we need these examples. 
He has three examples for encouragement in mind, role models, not larger than life people, but pretty ordinary people who were nevertheless patient on what God would provide. But before we turn to those examples, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 14, and we'll consider one last word about oaths before we move on together. Mark chapter 14. Mark is the second of four gospels that start our New Testament. I'll read in verse 66. This here is the only instance we have in the Bible recorded where a man calls down curses on himself if he's lying. He swears an oath. It's Peter. And as Peter, verse 66, was below in the courtyard, Jesus being tortured, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And when she went out in the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now what was Peter doing? Well, he was trying to protect himself. He was using words to create an illusion of reality that would protect himself by disassociating himself from Christ. He didn't believe in the face of all that was going on that Jesus' words concerning what he would do were really true. And he wasn't patient even to wait and find out. And he lied, even using an oath to strengthen the perception that was, he was telling the truth to deny Christ. It doesn't get much worse than that. But of course, the truthfulness of Jesus' words was being confirmed even in that moment. Verse 20, 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And this is good. And Peter broke down and wept. And Peter and Jesus were reconciled. When Jesus was raised, he reconciled with Peter. And Peter went on to be no coward, but a bold witness for the gospel of Christ, preaching the very first Christian sermon. And so, the point, God can forgive the kinds of sins that we're discussing. Jesus Christ himself went to the cross, betrayed by his very own disciples who were swearing oaths against him and Jesus forgave Peter. Peter wept and repented and turned to Christ. So do the same. If you're guilty of living like Jesus isn't who he said he is and like he isn't returning like he promised, you can be forgiven because of the gospel. Now for our examples, three examples of patience, three examples of patience Examples of waiting that help us wait for Christ. Examples which are resources for the encouragement of our hearts that we really can hang on. And three examples to teach us three things. The mindset, the cost, and the reward of waiting. The mindset, the cost, and the reward of waiting. First, consider the example of farmers, he says. Verses 7 through 8. Farmers teach us the mindset for patience. They don't force an outcome, but prepare for God's outcome. 
He writes, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Farmers have a certain way of thinking that is helpful for us as Christians to observe. They wait on something. Waiting is the nature of their work. No farmer ever said, why can't this whole cycle thing just happen in a day? Because that's not how it works. Waiting is how they work. The farmer is accepted waiting as a way of life. In Palestine, there were two rains, an early rain and a late rain. Early rain was in the late fall, early winter, which was the water for a harvest in the spring. And then another rain in late spring, which was for a harvest in the summer. And farmers aren't just a generic example of waiting, but an example of people who waited on the Lord season by season and year by year. For this, this rotation in Palestine of the, the climate was understood to be the cycle of God's provision for his people. Farmers wait on something, and they wait on something that's precious. That's precious. The precious fruit of the earth. It's their livelihood. Without it, they don't live. Not only is there no living, but there's no food for themselves or their families. This is the precious outcome that they waited for. Consider that the command to be patient will be heard differently depending on what we're waiting for and, how, and who the one is that's guaranteeing it. It's hard to be patient when you aren't sure what you're waiting for, and it's hard to be patient if you can't be sure if it's really coming after all. But James's readers would have had in mind Jesus' very words, where Jesus himself told us what was coming, told us what he would do, and told us that he would come. Think of Matthew 25, 31 and following. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he says, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, Listen to this precious outcome. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41, then they will say to the, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He compares his coming and elsewhere to like the days of Noah, there's marrying and giving in marriage. There's eating and drinking. And then Noah's family goes under the ark. And the world is swept away. So we can be sure while it's a hard word to read about how in Jesus' certain condemnation of what he calls here the goats, we can be sure that no man who guns down 50 precious bearers of God's image and does not turn to Christ and cast himself on him for forgiveness will not be safe on that day whether he guns down 50 image bearers in a school during the day or a club in Orlando at night, he is not safe and Jesus will resolve this. There's always lots of clumsy searching out for answers and blame and explanations after these kinds of things. And we watch that on TV. We have an ultimate answer in sin and Satan who blinds the minds of unbelievers and we have an ultimate resolution which is the return of Christ who will deal with it for sure, that his return, praise the Lord, for those who have entrusted themselves to Christ is a blessing. You think of Luke 12 where Jesus said this, 
Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. You'd be blessed if you're awake when he comes. And so James is saying, be awake. Be patient for the coming of the Lord. Or John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. Consider just how much Jesus and the New Testament authors use the coming of Christ or the study of future things to comfort and help believers actually live faithfully. In times, things are always practical. Here Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and me also. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. What a precious outcome to be with Jesus. That's what we're waiting for. There's nothing we could accomplish or try to bring about here that can even touch that. It's interesting, the New Testament focuses less really on heaven, the eternal state, though it does, Jesus says he prepares a place, than it does his actual coming. He says, I will come again. He speaks about when he comes. You think about an adoptive child waiting for mom and dad and for the adoption to be complete for a child, boy or girl, to be received for mom and dad to come. Surely if the child is old enough, there is an imagination on fire with what life will be like with mom and with dad. Nevertheless, there is a constant eye to the door when mom and dad walk through the door, when they come. And so for the Christian, no surprise, as we read our Bibles, there's a constant eye to the door and a reminder that Jesus will come to make things right. So watch the door. We look forward to the completion of Christ's work. This is the precious outcome to which history is headed, and it's guaranteed by the words of Jesus and the will of the Father. Farmers wait. They wait for something precious, but they know that this precious fruit, this precious outcome is not automatic. Farmers work very, very hard on their way as they wait. They do not wait on their harvest like we wait on an Amazon package, doing other things, more or less forgetting that we ordered it, and there it is. What is this? And then you open it and remember that you bought pens or a shirt or whatever, they work very hard. They work the earth as they wait. They do not take a season off and expect the same crop. And so James says to us, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts, which is hard work. It's hard work. He uses the word steadfast and speaks about the steadfastness of the prophets and of Job later. Sustained endurance is what we're talking about. The Christian life is not relaxing. It is not easy. There are temptations at every moment for an easy off-ramp. But what James describes here is a life of sustained, hard work, endurance, as we look forward to the day when Christ comes. And this takes all of us to do. And if you have a hard time imagining being patient for Christ's return, it might be, this can happen to any of us that it's just hard to imagine Christ's return. We don't think about it. Our imagination is not set on that future coming like it is set on so many other things that we look forward to in the future in this life. 
And that may be because the soil, if you will, the field of your heart is filled with rocks. There's no crops coming up in my backyard, only weeds. It's covered with rocks. But it may be that that's actually the soil of your heart. And that's why it's unfeeling. And that's why it doesn't actually look forward to the return of Christ. This is pushing the agricultural imagery a little farther than James does. But it's used this way in the Bible. Till the soil, work the soil, start farming, work hard to establish your hearts for the coming of Christ. James is calling us to be truly consistent inside and out, not grumbling or speaking falsely because our hearts are established, fix on a return of Christ. Second, we'll consider the example of the prophets. That's the example of farmers. Now the example of the prophets, verse 10. Prophets, we could say, teach us the cost of patience. The cost of patience. These guys don't force an outcome. They endured until God's promised end. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets did what God assigned for them to do. They spoke in the name of the Lord and they did it before people who would hate them for it. These guys lived in an age that didn't exactly encourage them with the hope of God's future coming. They were the ones bringing that message and everything around them said, you're wrong. And no one in this world except those who are working from God's word in this church family and elsewhere will ever say to you, having a difficult time struggling with this issue in a relationship, I would encourage you to look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. James will do that, and so that's why we're here. Otherwise, no one's going to say this to you. But the prophets heard from God, and they hung on to his every word, and they endured with great patience and suffered until the end. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, all spoke in the name of the Lord and suffered for it. It's in a little moment like this that some ongoing, regular, daily, through the Bible reading will pay off. As you're reading maybe what feel like obscure Old Testament stories, they all fit together. And right here, James cashes in our handle on our Old Testament for an encouragement to wait with patience. So keep reading your Bibles. Jesus and James point to suffering, point suffering Christians to the prophets. For an example, look at Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, that's interesting. Because even this last week, I don't know if you've been tracking with how the world around us is trying to process what happened in Orlando but there's not a few suggestions that Christians and our views of what gender is and marriage is are not responsible for creating, as they say, a climate of hate that led to this shooting. And so you've got Christians grilled on TV with a mic. What a profound misunderstanding. It's hard even to say this, but I don't think I've ever felt more misunderstood by the world. For it is our same, and to those of you who may be here who aren't with us as Christians and maybe you uh, identify as gay or a lesbian or transgender, um, let me say to you that our same understanding of what human beings are is made in God's image that leads us to 
promote and seek the welfare and the common good in certain policies or whatever in the political sphere, those same convictions are the same convictions that would lead any one of us in our right minds believing them to take the bullet for you in a moment where you are being attacked for how you identify yourself. That makes sense? Christians are misunderstood. We're spoken of against falsely, he says, on Jesus' account. But he says, rejoice and be glad. We can say we're being misunderstood, but rejoice and be glad. Our reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before us. Christians, we do not need to take matters into our own hands, for they are in God's hands already. And as it is, they do not fit in our hands. So bear it. Speak in the name of the Lord. Say what he's authorized you to say. Don't say anything he hasn't authorized you to say. And trust him, whatever the cost. And remember that blessed are you who suffer for Christ's sake. Blessed are you. Endure with patience, the cost is worth it. Which brings us to our third example. Farmers teach us the mindset for patience. Prophets teach us the cost of patience. And now, Job. Job. Job teaches us the reward of patience. Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job did not force an outcome. He suffered the loss of everything, his business, his family, his wealth, his health, and even his wife. Yes, his wife was alive, but we may presume that she was kept alive in order to tell Job, curse God and die. Yikes. Job's teaches us, teaches us, and we don't miss it listening to Job, that it's okay to lament. It's okay to have a healthy sense of are we there yet? A healthy sense of discontent with how things are working out in the world. Job never says all is well in the world. All is actually well in the world. No, he cries out for God's outcome. And even now as we live, Christ has come, but not all is well in the world. His kingdom is at hand, Jesus says. And yet it is not fully here. It's not complete. It's a silly illustration, but it works. A hot and ready in the front passenger seat of your car. Never get one of these? I can eat it while I'm going home, while I'm driving. My kids can't eat it. So they can smell the hot and ready. They have in their senses a taste of what's to come. And that's when Shay cries out, and I quote, Daddy, I need a pizza in my mouth right now. And so, and so in sort of, it's sort of that way. We're at church, we're hearing the word, we read the Bible, we believe the kingdom's at hand, Jesus has come, and that's wonderful. And yet it's not all here yet. It's real to our senses in a real way, but it is not completely consummated. It's inaugurated, we say, but not consummated in our experience. And so, and so Job, we can learn from him that it's okay to lament to look forward and to say all is not well. And yet James says things like this, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he can say to his wife, shall we receive good from God and not evil? And all of this scripture says he did not 
sin. And he can say to his friends who were taunting him, I know that my Redeemer lives, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And did he ever. For the book of Job ends on a beautiful, beautiful note of resolution where Job is restored. Job's health is restored. A family is given to him to replace those that were lost. And his wealth is restored. And there's no promise in that 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 happens for us in this life. What it is, is it's a parable of how things ultimately are for every Christian, whatever they lose here. The suffering of this present life can't compare to the glory to be revealed to us. And all things do work together for good, as the Apostle Paul tells us. And that's in the end. Even death can't separate us from the love of Christ. In the final analysis, in the final state, we will flourish things will be beautiful and all will be right. And Job is a reminder to us of all of this, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job teaches us that it's okay to lament, but he also teaches us a beautiful optimism in the midst of life's great frustrations. The Lord never lost track of Job and he never loses track of us. And so looking at him, we can learn from his steadfastness not to give up. We do not know as Job did not, what tomorrow will bring. It got a lot worse for Job before it got better. And then it got worse again before it got better. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But we do know what time will bring. We do know what the Lord will bring in his time. Farmers wait for something precious. The prophets wait on the Lord's promise. Job waited on the Lord's good, compassionate, and merciful purpose. A purpose he did not know, but a purpose that was good as his circumstances were hard. And this is what makes it possible for us to hang on without forcing our own outcome on our circumstances. This is why, as one preacher recently put it so well, the life of a Christian can only be explained by hope that lies beyond the grave. And so one way to be a more faithful Christian today It's not to do something that feels really radical when you go home. It's to do something that is really radical, but is more simple than we might expect. To hold our tongue when we want to grumble. To tell the truth with every word that we say. And to do it because we're looking forward to the return of Christ. We have no need to manipulate our circumstances, to manipulate the people in our life, or to throw anyone under the bus no matter how cruel they've been. Precisely because Jesus is coming back and nothing in this life that we might achieve through sin can compare with what he's promised to us. So please don't wait more than 10 seconds for a video to appear on your phone. Don't ever do that. Better be a pretty good video. But please, please, please endure anything until Christ comes. There is no need to force your outcome now The coming of the Lord is at hand and his outcome is so perfect. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for James's, as always, very practical words as he addresses very simple, common, and difficult sins, very destructive sins, Sins that we're vulnerable to, each of us. 
that our church is vulnerable to. We're grateful that he addressed them and that he does so in such a perceptive way. That your spirit understands our hearts better than we do. And so help us, Father, to see our sins, particularly the sins of false speech and of grumbling as offenses against your son's promise that he comes. Help us to honor him by being patient and not manipulating people or our lives in order to bring about uh, a small improvement from our perspective and so ignoring all that you've promised. Give us a vision of Christ's return. Make us a people that are eager for it, that see it in our minds. It is the horizon for all of life for us and may our lives be explainable by nothing else except this wonderful, wonderful promise that's found in scripture. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.